regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form in-depth conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Cody Coleman, the father and CEO of Coactive AI. He's also the creator of Donchbench and MLPerf and a founding member of ML Commons. His work spans from performance benchmarking of hardware and software system to computationally efficient methods for active learning and core set selections. Cody holds a PhD in computer science from Stanford University, where he was advised by Professor Matej Zaharia and Peter Bellis. And prior to that, he got degrees in bachelor science and master of engineering, both in CS from MIT. So Cody, glad to have you on the show. Thanks, James. Thanks for the introduction, and I'm glad to be here. Fabulous. I want to start our conversation going back into your story a little bit. In order to prepare for our conversation, I watched this uh, remarkable talk you gave at TEDx Stanford 2017 called Digging Deeper, How a Few Extra Moments Can Change Life. So can you share a bit for the audience about your upbringing in New Jersey, such your interest in science and technology, as well as the few people who have made such big differences in your story? Yeah, awesome. Thanks, James. I don't want to repeat myself too much from the TED Talk, so I'll just kind of do a quick recap. My father left before I was born. I like don't even know his name. My mom was actually in prison when I was born. Basically, as soon as she gave birth to me, I had to be put into foster care. And then I was adopted by my maternal grandparents and they adopted me and my siblings. And my grandparents, you know, they had like big hearts for trying to adopt me and my siblings, but they really didn't have much left to give us, you know? So basically we grew up in poverty my entire life with like welfare and social security and basically just like grew up in kind of just like a poor neighborhood or I went to kind of a public school kind of throughout my entire life. About a year after kind of my mom was in prison, her charges got dropped. And, you know, my grandparents having kind of the big heart that they had for kind of taking in of all of us and being our guardians, they, of course, took in my mom as well. But that was like a constant source of drama. My mom, while she was actually in prison, she was declared insane by the FBI. So it was just constant source of drama. I think over the 24 years that we had the house, we racked up something like 65 police reports for everything from my mother throwing hatchets in the front yard and we live like next to a highway. So sometimes they would like miss the tree and go out into the road to like all sorts of crazy stuff that you can't even imagine. And it's hard to actually kind of like convey like how chaotic and ridiculous kind of life was just because of the fact that like, you know, I think a lot of people say that their parents are crazy, but my mom was actually insane. I mean, she was in and before uh, she went to prison, she was kind of in and out of homeless shelters, had to deal with a lot. So even kind of coming back, it was difficult to get like a little bit of a sense of like what it was like, you know, I can talk maybe some kind of experiences, like some stories about kind of like my mom that I think would give a sense of like her character. So I mean, my mom, first off, like once she went to prison, and my grandparents adopted us, she basically was like, you're no longer our kids anymore. She didn't really care about me or anything like that. She was like, your your grandmother's like responsibility, you know? 
And like literally from like going to doctors or anything like that, there was never like even a notion of like getting health insurance or really caring about kind of my personal health. So I think kind of a great story of this was that my mom, like she loved animals. So she got like all these cats and dogs with this like dream of like opening up her own pet store. You know, I think we had something like a ridiculous number, like 11 cats, like 14 dogs or something like that. Living in this like small little house, you know, it was barely like I was sleeping in the living room at the time. There wasn't even like room for me as a bed. And then on top of all of that, like I'm allergic to cats and dogs. So I just basically grew up every single day. I was sick with allergies from the cats and dogs. And like, we always called my mom cookie. She never even like thought to like get allergy medicine or anything like that. So I was just constantly sick every single time while I was home, like just like the allergies and things like that. Similarly, another story that I think kind of exemplifies this is that with the constant drama that she had with my grandparents, she would kind of get fed up and she would leave. And I remember the first time that my mom left and it was kind of all of a sudden, you know, I was like, I just woke up one morning and then she comes to me and she's like, Cody, I'm leaving to like go to New Mexico or something like that. And I'm just like, as like a kid, you know, I'm like, I don't know, probably like 10 or something like that at the time. And like, like at that point, I was still like kind of, I was dependent on my mom. Like she was like kind of this person I looked to and stuff like that. And so I was like, what am I going to do? And she's like, Cody, you're smart. You'll figure it out. And then just left. She went down the stairs and like left the house and was gone for months at a time. I'm just like, oh, oh my gosh. Like, what are we going to do with all this stuff? You know? And then, so with that, that was like super like difficult. And then my grandmother and my grandparents, you know, they had like a very big heart for adopting us. But at the same time, I think they had kind of become jaded just based off of everything that was happening with my mother and everything like that, my siblings. So they weren't super encouraging. Also, they didn't have like, it was like a completely different world now. You know, they grew up in the Great Depression. My grandfather only had a second grade education. My grandmother had a fourth grade education. Literally like going to college you know, or like trying to like do well in school, like that meant nothing to them. You know, it was just like, I would come home and I would do well in school and no one really cared. And then there's all these things. I mean, I think there's probably like maybe two quick stories there that kind of exemplify this. One, I think is that like, it was probably in like middle school or high school or something like that. Because I was sick all the time, I would miss days from school and like no one noticed or paid any attention, like literally, which probably sounds like a perk to a lot of kids. I would just like go to like my grandparents and be like, hey, I don't want to go to school today. I'm not feeling well. And they'd be like, yeah, totally. That's fine. And I would just like stay home from school. But I nearly got in trouble because I think I missed like 17 days of school or something like that. And they were like, if you miss one more, you're going to have to repeat the grade. And I'm like doing like super well in classes and stuff like that. And like no one really paid attention to this at all. And I was just like, well, I'll figure it out. And that's kind of been like the story of my life. Like literally like with the chaos that was going on and everyone else trying to survive, it was just like, and I was like left on my own to like figure everything out. Mm-hmm. Though things kind of changed late half of middle school. So my two older brothers, Sean, he's 18 years older than me and Shannon, he's 11 years older than me. When I was born, Sean basically wanted nothing to do with the family and left as soon as he could. And then it wasn't until I guess I was in late middle school that he had settled down a little bit and he had kind of got into his own position that he kind of came back into my life. He was the one that kind of like first kind of actually cared about me and like kind of wanted to support and help me out. And he had gone to college, but he ended up dropping out. And then he worked in IT for a bit and he helped me build my first computer, you know, and I still remember he was kind of probably the first person that really believed in me and kind of my first like role model in a sense. I think that's also part of the reason I do computer science now. He helped me build my computer and he showed me that like, you know, this thing is actually like possible. You know, I can actually, someone like me can actually create a computer. Someone can do like all this stuff and things like that. 
which was super awesome having him kind of in like late middle school, beginning of my like high school years. Unfortunately, after kind of a bit, he had his own issues with kind of his own family. And again, I know just dropped off the radar, but then that's kind of where things worked out with like my high school teachers. And I had this amazing trigonometry teacher, Chantel Smith, that basically became kind of my unofficial adopted mom. She like saw that my braces were falling apart and she took me to her kids orthodontist paid for me to go to like driving school so i could actually get out of the house away from all those cats and dogs that were making me sick and then actually be able to like afford food and like buy food for myself and things like that and then also the other amazing teachers like norm ingram nancy young all these teachers in kind of my high school especially as they saw and kind of learned a little bit more about me kind of my background i was doing kind of band together to help out does that kind of answer your question? I kind of went a little bit long there, I guess, kind of the background details of early childhood, but. For sure. I, I think I really appreciate the story, you know, how you vividly remember these specific moments that shape your bringing. And, you know, you can remember the names of these teachers who really make a major impact. So very apparent that you have to be independent and just being self-sufficient at such a young age. And we'll talk about later on in your career in education as well. So that sounds to be the thread that's connect, build up your character over time. And I think that's a very powerful story in a way. Hopefully people can relate it to get inspired by your background and really truly understanding how much difficulty that you have gone through. So thanks for providing all those anecdotes and specific context of your upbringing. I guess thanks to your brother, Sean, right? You become interested in computers and become interested in general science and technology. And in fact, you went to undergrad at MIT back in the early to mid 2010s, and you got both your bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering and computer science there. So could you mind going over your overall academic experience at MIT? Yeah, totally. So thinking about going to MIT, I guess actually a little bit more context, kind of late in high school, kind of my upbringing in New Jersey a bit. I mentioned my brother, Sean, who was kind of this first like inspiration that like, you know, computers are actually a thing. I was also really into video games at the time. I played, I don't know, like things like Halo and like Gears of War. And Ultimately, I was like, wow, you know, the life that I kind of grew up in was this whole context of just like chaos. And for me, video games were kind of an escape. And like the idea that with like a computer, you could create this entire other world was just amazing to me. And that's kind of like initially where like the whole interest in computer science came from. I didn't even know that was called computer science. So I just saw it as like, oh, computers creating awesome things and things like that. So when it came to like apply to colleges, I didn't know anything about it. You know, like my grandparents, again, they grew up in the Great Depression, had like barely didn't even finish like elementary school. So I remember like going through the common application and I'm looking at this like drop down for different things to major in. And, you know, I was like, I didn't know anything. I was like, oh man, you know, I love computers because of my brother. And also I was a weird kid growing up. And the fact that like, you know, rather than saying when someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up, rather than saying like a firefighter or an astronaut or something, I said a scientist. So I remember on this drop down like list, I was like, oh my gosh, you can like, there's a major that is com computer and science. Like what? Like that's a thing. So I remember just being like, let me go for that. That'll be like my perspective major. And then after that, like looking up on like the college board, what were like the best schools for computer science, you know, and I figured, you know, there's like probably no chance I'm going to get in. But maybe there's like this like very small percentage. So like, why not just go for it? So that's when I first like found out about MIT because no one where I grew up really knew about MIT or these places. Like literally my grandmother didn't realize that MIT was a thing 
until a year after I like started freshman year. Like I remember when I was like leaving to go to MIT, like my grandmother at the time didn't realize that that was a big deal. And I think again, she was kind of jaded and stuff like that. But then when I came back, you know, I remember she had talked to like some lady in the grocery store or something like that. And that lady was like, just kind of chatting with her and just like, oh, you have grandchildren. What are they doing now? And she's like, oh yeah, my youngest just went to college. And then the lady's like, where? And then she's like, oh, MIT. And the lady just freaks out like, what? That's amazing. And my grandmother comes back and tells me like afterwards like when I come home that oh like MIT like you've you've done really well so kind of all that setting up the backdrop for MIT like it was kind of crazy like literally I was the first student from my high school to ever go to MIT like this place I didn't realize how big of a deal it was you know I'm just kind of naively optimistic and I kind of got myself in over my head this is crazy I couldn't even get to MIT I, I was working at the county library at the time and my boss her parents were driving up to Boston so I like hitched a ride with them to actually get to MIT to actually start my degree there. And I'll never forget just like lying in this like extended twin size bed, you know, I'm six, four. So like my legs are like hanging out at the end of the bed or my feet are, and I'm staring up at the ceiling and I'm like realizing the gravity of the situation that I've gotten myself into. You know, I'm like this kid from this like middle of nowhere town in South Jersey, like from this like poor public high school. We're ranked like 300 out of 322 schools. And I'm here at MIT, which is apparently like, I didn't realize it was apparently like the best school for like engineering in like the world, like college board rankings and stuff like that. The initial thing hit me and I was like, oh dear God, what have I gotten myself into? You know, what am I possibly doing here? So that was kind of the immediate, like staring up at the ceiling, like, how am I going to figure this out? And like, when I left high school, you know, people, even like my friends weren't as supportive. I remember one of my best friends at the time, you know, told me when I was going to MIT, he was like, oh, you know, the only reason you got into MIT is because you're black, you know, just for whatever reason, that was like his explanation to kind of explain it away. But for me, that caused me like a lot of like, just fear, you know, going into that whole situation, like, man, you know, this is like, I didn't realize like how big of a school MIT was. And then was this all a mistake? Am I meant to be here? And I just had this like intense, like sense of imposter syndrome in a sense. Going into MIT, I was like, there's no way that I can keep up and stuff. But kind of two things, like I think kind of helped to define like my time at MIT, kind of get over that, like just immense fear, almost kind of immobilizing. One, I realized that like no one in Boston or at MIT knew anything about me growing up or like my family or where I came from or anything like that. Because yeah, you know, that's one of the perks of being the first one from your high school to ever go to MIT is that like, there's no one else around or anything like that. So I realized I had kind of a blank slate to like define who I was, define like what I was capable of and that I would take advantage of that and really think about putting my best foot forward and being the person I ultimately want to be. And also, and effectively that like helped me mentally let go of like my past and keep that from like clouding my vision as I move forward. And then the second piece was that, you know, I think the imposter syndrome kind of kicked in and I was like, well, MIT has like all these resources and there's like, I don't know, office hours and there's like, there's recitation and tutorials and you can get a tutor and stuff like that. And there's all these kind of like cool programs. And I was like, if there's anyone that needs these programs or it's like definitely me. So I wasn't afraid to ask at all. You know, I just like asked a ton of questions and I went to office hours and whatnot. 
And I also didn't like oversubscribe myself. I kind of came in and I was like, you know, let me focus on getting the basic classes out of the way and doing the average and not trying to do too much. Because I feel like a lot of people kind of fall into this trap at MIT where they end up burning themselves out or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of stayed a steady course and just like wasn't afraid to ask questions, take advantage of resources. And ultimately that ended up working out, you know, mm-hmm. not only did I like graduate from MIT, but I did pretty well. I had like a four nine out of 5.0 GPA for my bachelor's of science. And then I stayed on for my master's of engineering and I got a 5.0 GPA there. Mm-hmm. And I ended up being a part of like the engineering honor society, TBP. And then also I became the president of the uh, electrical engineering and computer science honor society, Ada Kappa Nu, for two years. So both during my senior year and then during my master's of engineering as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that whole process was just a bit of heads down, being very like humble about things, not afraid to like ask questions or anything like that. And also I, I lucked out that I connected with like an awesome group of people that were in like a similar situation to me. You know, they came, there's this program called Interface. So there's a bunch of students that had kind of similar backgrounds to me. It came from low income environments that were going through that same kind of like, oh my gosh, what have I got myself into? Yeah. So we kind of bonded through all of that. And then also like, it's just an amazing experience. There's so many opportunities, like whether it be like internships, traveling abroad, I studied abroad for an entire year at Cambridge University. Um, and it just kind of opened up my world from like, you know, thinking about kind of my career life. Like I, I used to think my dream job was being a game designer and working for Epic Games. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, there's this, I was like, ah, oh, this would be awesome. To then realizing that there's so much that you can do with computer science and all these things from web development to data science to like machine learning and things like that. So it just turned what seemed like it was like, oh my gosh, like I'm jumping off a cliff into like an amazing experience that like showed me the world. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for you know sharing all those details and especially like how do you overcome imposter syndrome, like you said, basically renegotiating your identity coming into this new environment. And it sounds like you're not afraid of trying out. Because of that, you open yourself to new opportunities and take advantage of the resource being offered and also like just finding a support group with similar background to elevate your situation. So yeah, thanks for providing all the context on, on that regard. Just out of curiosity throughout your dual degree in EENCS, was there any particular favorite classes that you recall taking or you enjoy learning? Uh, and if so, how? Yeah, so favorite classes while I was at MIT. I think there's a bunch of different classes I enjoyed for different reasons. One, you know, kind of surprisingly, I'll never forget 6002 at MIT, uh, which is like their circuits class. So I did electrical engineering and computer science. And so I was like kind of split between the two. It was kind of a funny class, but I actually ended up enjoying circuits a lot because it had this like whole notion of like engineering and intuition and building stuff and things like that. For whatever reason, kind of like operating in that mode, like worked really well, like thinking about how do these things piece together? And also like the fact that like things aren't perfect, you know, like there's a little bit of things like resistors aren't exactly kind of like this precise number and like thinking about kind of all this like pieces of it. But then with like some outcome and how you kind of go from these like imperfect pieces to actually making something that does the job. I really found that to actually be quite interesting. In a sense, I was like my first introduction to engineering in a sense, and like a a real way where you have these imperfect pieces, you have this goal and you have to piece it together and figure out kind of all these like different pieces in between. And I found that I was like really good at that class. I think that was actually probably one of the best classes that I had where I remember like the final exam, it was like three hour exam and I finished it in like an hour and a half. I was like the second person to finish it. And it was like, and then in that class, I don't know, I got like 99 or something like that. It was like ridiculous. But so that was like, just really enjoyable as far as like, I think kind of my own sense of accomplishment and finding something that 
problem solving piece of it was really awesome. I also really love Founder's Journey. So this is a class at MIT. It's for kind of engineers to learn about entrepreneurship and things like that. And ever since I was a little kid, you know, I actually had dreamed of starting my own business one day. And I remember that I was talking with my grandmother at one point and I'll never forget it. Like I was like, Hey, you know, I want to start my own business one day. And my grandmother, again, she grew up in a very different time and whatnot. Like when I said this to her, she was just like, I got to set his expectations right. And she's like, you know, they'll never let a black man start his own company, you know? And that like, for some reason that like stuck with me uh, as far as being afraid of like, man, you know, can I do it? A similar imposter syndrome to like when I first started at MIT and like my best friend said, oh, you know, the only reason you got into MIT was because you're black. But for some reason that like little, like, I don't know, flame of like wanting to like start my own company at one day didn't like die, you know, I didn't give it up. It was kind of always something that was on the back burner of my mind. Like even when I started at MIT, I thought about like double majoring in computer science or electrical engineering, computer science and management as well. Kind of going back, like, who am I kidding? You know, I'm coming from like this poor public high school and I have to compete against like the best people in the world. I was like, one major from MIT is probably enough, you know? So I ended up sticking with electrical engineering, computer science. Mm -hmm. uh, and I figured that I would get kind of like the management experience and kind of that whole thing from like the experiences that I had. Yeah. So that kind of came into like internships, but also like the classes, like Founder's Journey was this first class for me that kind of demystified the process of starting your own company in a sense where you just got to hear other entrepreneurs um, very similar to this podcast, just talk about their story, you know, talk about how they went through and created their company is and all of the like, you know, unexpected things and the fact that there's no magic kind of formula for it. So mm -hmm. just that whole notion of like, oh, you know, why like just the process of entrepreneurship and figuring things out and then just realizing that there's nothing inherently like special. There's not like some checklist that you need to fulfill in order to be able to do these things which I think was like a, a super eye-opening experience for me to just be like, oh, you know, this is possible. Like there is no magic formula. Like I can go out and do that. Definitely really stood out to me. Mm -hmm. I think those are probably the two biggest classes in my mind. I was also going to say the graduate machine learning class at, at MIT, because that was just like notorious as like being really, really tough as like a class. And I remember I was like, oh my gosh, like how am I going to do in this class and stuff like that? Everyone said that was really hard, but I ended up doing well in that class. It was quite good. But actually, you know, um, Patrick Winston had a class like the human intelligence enterprise, which I think back to a lot. It's like basically kind of like stories with Patrick Winston about research and life in general. And I think that was also just like another cool class kind of similar to founder's journey to actually get to like hear how someone thinks about the world and the whole process. So I'd probably say those are my three favorite, the electrical engineering or the circuits class founder's journey, and then human intelligence enterprise with Patrick Winston. Yeah. Thanks a lot for sharing those details. It sounds like you kind of enjoy classes with a more emphasis on the history and the stories where people not just purely based on the content itself. You really mentioned that I mean, you try to pack up that entrepreneurial slash management skill set by uh, doing other activities besides just academics, right? And in particular, you serve as the president of the Eta Kappa New Honor Society MIT chapter. And besides that, you also did some research work to advance online education at the MIT Office of Digital Learning. So yeah, can you share some details about your involvement with these initiatives? Yeah, so great question. So starting with Eta Kappa New, 
at the very beginning of like MIT, even despite all this like imposter syndrome stuff, I always had this notion of just like having kind of big goals. So I was like, hey, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to like do it really well. Like even if I shoot for like the stars and I don't make it, I'll land on the moon or however the saying goes. So I really wanted to do very well at MIT. I mean, I had a secret goal of getting 5.0 like GPA at MIT. Just as like, it's not going to be achievable at all. But I worked really hard and then getting into like Ada Kapanu and getting that invitation letter and stuff was a super awesome like achievement. But then it's kind of odd. For whatever reason, I somehow like get pulled into like leadership positions. I still very vividly remember like the induction ceremony after I did like all the service and all the requirements for Ada Kapanu. And then there's like elections immediately after like the induction ceremony. And I was actually like studying abroad that year. I was at Cambridge University. So I was on like a Zoom call like this. I was like dressed up, bottom up. I had like pajamas on during this like ceremony and stuff like that. And then the election thing happens afterwards. And even though I was abroad, it was like, you know, like no one was like really stepping up for like being president or anything like that. And I was like, you know, I'll do it. Like, I'll like, why not? You know, kind of this naive optimism piece of it of just being president. So and then like, surprisingly, everyone like voted for me. I think I also ran unopposed since like no one else wanted the job. It was actually really awesome. So Ada Kepanu at the time, there's Tal Beta Pi, which was the other engineering honor society. And like, it was kind of crazy because Tal Beta Pi had like a ridiculous amount of resources because they ran like the spring career fair at MIT. So like all these companies are paying tons of money to go to the career fair and whatnot. But like, despite those resources, like I feel like Tal Beta Pi was good, but they almost had like too much. Whereas Ada Kappa Nu did like a ton of stuff for the department. But in comparison, we didn't have nearly the same amount of funding. Like Ada Kappa Nu ran the tutoring program for like all of the like advanced classes in like computer science. We ran like the resume book for folks to get their kind of resumes out there. We also ran this thing called the underground guide. So this was basically a peer review system for courses where it'd just be students would review their courses after they've completed it. And then someone would aggregate all of those reviews and actually create kind of what is like the student's view of this course. You know, these were like super useful, like resources for people in the department. Like the underground guide was like a huge thing that every student used to pick out classes and same thing with like the tutoring program. But at the time, you know, like we were kind of dwindling in like membership a little bit. So I kind of came in and I was like, oh man, we got to do this well and like almost deal with like herding cats because people will get busy. And then like, even like the other chairs that I had would get busy and we had to like kind of figure out how to do stuff. But we did it. We like actually grew the membership of the group overall. We also continued all those programs. So the resume book, tutoring program, underground guide. But then we even like started new programs. So I remember that we were actually doing kind of like a women's outreach initiative at the time. And we had a whole chair from that. I think it was actually Chelsea Finn, who's now like a faculty member at Stanford. We went to MIT together at the same time. And she was a part of Ada Kappa Nu as well. And like she led the women's outreach program while I was president. Again, like for me coming into like not knowing anything about computer science or the world, like one thing that I thought was like a huge problem was like knowing which path do you pursue after getting your like degree in computer science? You know, there's like going and working in tech, there's working in startups, there's working as like a research, you know, or there's being consultants and stuff like that. So I personally like organized a panel with a bunch of alumni and people connected to MIT to actually have kind of all of those different career paths represented and then have a panel and Q&A session to help students that were like me that didn't know how to like navigate this whole process. It was a very tough 
organization to run since like we were like very scrappy we didn't have like the same amount of money or funding as like other other societies and we also required people to do a lot of work like you actually had to like do work to get into ada kappa Nu. you had to do like 14 hours of service or something like that on one of our committees versus like tau beta pi was we attended like two social events or something like that but we continued everything we made it like even larger so it was a super rewarding experience and then to get reelected for president the following year was super awesome for some reason i was crazy enough to do it again and to continue with like all of that but uh it worked out we also helped design the lounge like the ecs student lounge at mit as well yeah. where we used to hold our meetings so it was a cool experience and to actually have like lasting change at mit it was awesome it does sounds like running that organization sounds like running a startup right yeah yeah it's like running a startup though it's kind of funny and it's coming in like when things are like downhill you know and having to turn everything around but yeah the scrappiness aspect of it yeah i think it does come in and like the whole getting the management experiences and stuff like that i think it was a good crash course of like how do you build morale and get people to sign up and keep going and also just being able to see like a diamond in the rough you know mm -hmm. um from that whole experience and then the Office of Digital Learning was another interesting story there. So MIT is very big into undergrads doing research. So I think it's like 85% of people do the undergrad research program. And I just say yes to a lot of stuff, especially when I first got to MIT. So I remember I did like a Europe after my freshman year, I did summer research, maybe during spring semester of my freshman year, which was way too soon. I was not prepared to do research after like my freshman spring, but I still had this interest. So coming like senior year, I was like, oh, you know, I'll do research. I just come back from like the Cambridge MIT exchange program. So I wasn't burnt out yet. I actually lined up another research assistantship position in like a, a different lab, but there was this whole movement around like online courses and, and edX and things like that. And I remember like they had appointed someone to be like the director of the office of digital learning at MIT. So I saw this and I had just come back from Cambridge and I was like, wow, I think digital learning could really help people, you know, like both at MIT and abroad kind of be able to experience top-notch education. So I emailed the director of the Office of Digital Learning, the newly appointed director, Sanjay Sarma. And I was like, hey, can I chat with you to like share some of these ideas I had? So I chatted with him for like 30 minutes. He responded quite quickly. And then like at the end of that 30 minute call, he was like, Hey, Cody, like, do you want to do research with me in the office of digital learning, you know, and like do your master's of engineering with the office of digital learning. And I already had like a position lined up at the time, like another RA ship where I was going to do cybersecurity, but I was just like, no, like education was like, I was like, yes, let me do this research assistantship in education because it was just so powerful. Education was so powerful in my life and transforming my trajectory to be able to make that more accessible to people just really resonated with me. So I ended up actually turning down the other RA ship that I had. And I recommended one of my friends instead. And he actually ended up aligning with that person and doing his RA ship. So everything like worked out really well for them. And then like I ended up doing kind of my RA ship in the office of digital learning, which was very much like a startup at the time. From like the computer science side of stuff, there was like me, a postdoc, and then like my faculty advisor, Isaac Schwung, and then a PhD student that had just started. So there was the four of us that started at the same time when this office was being created, trying to figure out like how to do research in this like new space of digital learning as it was all being created. It was a super fun and kind of crazy time to be a part of. We were like writing the first papers on like massive open online courses and stuff like that. Also working with edX and having to deal with like undocumented code and figuring out all this functionality and stuff was like another crazy process. But ultimately we ended up doing a lot of awesome work and working jointly with Harvard actually in their school of education to publish like papers at this kind of intersection to identify students that were struggling 
to figure out how to best intervene and help students space out their practice and all this stuff because of the data that was for the first time made available about education. You know, before that, learning was like this thing that only happened in person. It was very hard to get like kind of fine-grained details. But now because it was in a digital interface, you actually could track everything every single time that someone pauses or plays a video and get this really awesome fine-grained data, which led to a lot of awesome like data science and ML problems there. I see. Just kind of related to that note, a little bit about that intersection of machine learning and education. I mean, obviously it's been a while, a few years since you work on that project, but I'm just curious, like, what do you see the future of digital learning look like in the upcoming years or so? Anything that you bullish on about the experience of students, especially given the fact that majority of education these days happening remotely? Yeah, great question. And, and that last point, I think, is also really interesting, right? Like, I think that, like, digital learning was held back a little bit from, like, impacting kind of traditional education systems because of the fact it was just, like, not online. But because of the pandemic, you know, maybe the silver lining here is that it forced us all to kind of go into this digital world and to learn online. I think that this is super awesome for a variety of reasons. One, I think that like when you have kind of a whole like world of like resources exposed to you and you also have teachers that are now kind of more comfortable with like kind of pulling in these digital resources, integrating that into a class in a flexible kind of manner. Like now I think it opens up the world just for like sharing of kind of best practices and materials and kind of like tying that into curriculum even more so that now it's not just like you're like a set of teachers at a high school or you're just kind of isolated from like the broader world of education and like maybe you have some like learning development like teachers in-house like maybe once or twice a year or something like that to now being able to and like kind of being in this mindset of like learning from others all around the world and adopting these best practices so I think that's super awesome. And I think that like, especially with like just teacher education, sharing resources is one huge thing that I think will be awesome. I think also like the tools for students will get better, you know, as far as like just creating kind of more engaging experiences, especially as we can like collect more data, learn more about what works and what doesn't work and be able to run kind of experiments, you know, putting like my scientist hat on, being able to run experiments kind of way more quickly and way more efficiently. Like when you see like tech companies doing A-B experiments to like kind of fine tune all these like little details, I think that there's the possibility for that now as we kind of increasingly use digital tools for learning. And then kind of the grand vision of it is that like, I feel like education, like in just our, our process around creating curriculum and stuff like that has been fairly like slow in a sense. Like it takes a little bit of time for it to adjust. The people that create the content is like these kind of big sources. And I think actually by having like more feedback, having kind of all this stuff digital and being able to share resources, I think things will move faster and will be like democratized. The vision that I see is that, you know, basically education is something that can connect from like, you have some goal now, right? Like maybe you want to get a job at Google or do like wherever it might be. But to be able to kind of take that like very abstract path and then also have all the data about where you are right now and be able to kind of build pathway for you to achieve that goal and really be something that assists you as almost like a, a buddy to navigate the world and accomplish the goals that you want. The system underneath can be optimizing all the time. You know, one of my colleagues from my time at MIT, he had this whole notion of like self-improving systems. And like one of the cool examples there was you have like a math question. And you ask the students like what the answer is, and then to explain the answer, what was the reasoning behind them giving that answer to this math question? What the system would do is it would take the explanations that students gave and it would basically run like a super large multi-arm bandit A-B experiment to see like when someone asks for help or for a tip, 
what is the best explanation to help students? Mm -hmm. And like that simple thing, that's actually quite cool as like an idea where like students can be contributing to the system, making it better and being able to address kind of a broader range of perspectives and come up with kind of more personalized and better experiences. Mm -hmm. Just in the same way that like we create just entertainment content feeds that are like more targeted for you specifically, I think we'll mm -hmm. see a similar thing in education where it can just create kind of very engaging content that helps people follow their path and accomplish the dreams that they have. I see. And I think like to that point, like everyone has a different learning style. So there are absorb differences in different ways. So I think to your point about getting a personalized recommendation engine for education offerings that tailor to a specific person, it's really, really holistic and sensible way to satisfy all that appetite, right? So definitely yeah. to, you know, got to see that vision manifest itself into the future. Yeah, um, totally. During your time at MIT, you also completed two separate internships with Google one doing local search quality in Mountain View and the other one doing YouTube analytics in Zurich. So what were some of the valuable lessons that you learned from such industry experience? That's a great question. It's kind of funny. So like when I first went to MIT, again, super humble backgrounds. My dream from like graduating from like MIT was like, I just wanted to get like a good job somewhere where I could afford the things that I needed and do like some of the stuff that I wanted. So like, I mean, growing up, we couldn't even afford toilet paper consistently, you know, we're going to like McDonald's and like taking napkins and things like that. And then like thinking about like places to work, Google was this place where it was like, oh, I think it had just been voted like the best place to work or something like that. Again, kind of with these like big goals of like, you know, the MIT like 5.0 is like, I really wanted to work at Google at the time. I mean, it was a super interesting experience, you know, because I actually first started after my freshman year, I actually did a summer internship through Misty Mexico, where I was in Mexico City. But I also applied for this program at Google called the Bold Immersion Program. And it was the first year that they had ever done it. The reason I found out about it, the BOLD program is actually for all of the non-technical internships at Google, which is kind of odd, you know, I'm a pure science major at like MIT, but I applied for this thing. That was because the Boston office of Google was a sales office and they had like an event at the Boston office. So when I like went over to like Google, I was like, they were telling me about this like BOLD program and stuff like that, since it was all kind of like the non-technical like sales like folks at Google. The BOLD program was quite cool. It was also just like a super diverse group of people. I was in New York City and I flew out there and I got selected for that program, which was like, whoa, like actually I, like there's a chance I could do this whole thing and things like that. And then what happened in my second internship. So when I was actually out in Mountain View, I was just like a weird intern at Google because I had done the bold program before. So I had this like kind of the experience about all the like non-technical kind of like business pieces of it. Like, so there's like people that are thinking about marketing and stuff like that. But then also I was like a software engineer. So I think they kind of had me as part of both programs, both the bold program and like a SWE intern. And because of that, I was facing, I was in this team that was interfacing between two things, you know, like the intersection of how does engineering meet like actual business needs. So like with local search quality, it's like the business goal, like what's happening here is that businesses are creating their listings on Google and we're trying to drive traffic to them and like help their business out. But at the same time, there's like all these crazy things where people will try to like falsely claim a listing and stuff like that and take it over. And to actually see how technology when put into the real world can like run into these issues and things that you don't even think about. And that was actually super cool because like the thing about that, that was probably my first introduction actually to machine learning because the way that they tried to detect spam was like through machine learning. They had like a whole classifier and stuff like that where they're pulling the data, basically detect like, hey, is this like a fraudulent listing or something like that? Doing everything from like feature engineering to thinking about how to like update this model and that was also my first introduction to R as like a programming language for like data statistics because my manager like 
really like exclusively used R. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll pick up R as like a result of this. We were also using the system at Google called Dremel. I think Dremel had, which later became Google BigQuery, but it was like fairly recent that like Dremel had become a thing and there was no like resources or anything like that on the team. And I I ended up becoming this Dremel expert and like reading the paper, like on Dremel and like column stores and stuff like that from like Google when I was in my sophomore year. And like, ultimately I ended up creating like training sessions and stuff like that to teach people how to use like Dremel for like kind of people in this like product quality or that are like, maybe not as like super technical to just bring it down to like, how can you actually like do this job and stuff like that? So there was a ton of things just actually from that internship that have kind of played out in my life from like the use of like ML to like actually solve key business problems to like actually thinking about data systems. Like with probably the first paper that I ever read was this Dremel paper from Google, which then ultimately became Google BigQuery. And then like looking at kind of analytics and like writing like SQL queries and all this stuff, it became like the expert and they like continued to use my like training materials that I created even after I left that internship. I remember like the following summer, one of my other friends had interned in like product quality and he was like, oh my gosh, Cody, we're using your tutorials. And I was like, oh my, it's insane. It's been like used by people in like Dublin, Ireland and all these different offices. And I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. So that was super cool to see data systems, ML meet business like needs and how that all kind of fits together from like an enterprise standpoint. And ultimately I ended up using BigQuery for like the stuff at Office of Digital Learning. And then when I coming out of this like weird thing where I was like a bold intern and like a software engineering intern, I naturally wanted to do this like APM internship. So that's where I was working at Zurich, Switzerland and I had studied abroad that year. So rather than going to the US, I wanted to stay in Europe. Like working on, again, kind of like with this background of both business and like software engineering, being an APM at Google for YouTube analytics, I was in the process of them like switching from looking at number of views, which was like as a metric could be abused. Like people would have these clickbait thumbnails and stuff like that. And they wanted to use and expose like time watch as the metric for their recommendation algorithm because it was a harder metric to game. I was responsible for thinking about like, how do you showcase that to like both users on the front page, as well as to like the people that are creating content as well. But how do you do this at the scale of the world, you know, where you have to think about translation into like all these different languages. So I remember like, and also work with like so many different people on like the team, you know? So there was a team of engineers, there was like my manager, then there was also a designer and stuff like that. We also had to do this whole QA process like we actually had like user interviews that the designer ran and then thinking about like, oh, how do you do internationalization? Apparently, I think it was like Russian or something like that was like a really hard language where everything is like reversed and super long. And just thinking about all those like little kind of pieces that kind of go into even like launching what seemed like a very small thing. Like just the fact when you go to YouTube and you see like estimated time watched, even the word like putting estimated in front of that was like a whole thing. And just seeing that whole process was really awesome. How much work actually goes into creating a product and really thinking through every like piece of it and seeing that kind of happen. So that was kind of a cool first like project. And then also I built out, I started to design and think from like ground zero, like how would you like do analytics for like playlists? Mm -hmm. I mean, curators and kind of actually promote and kind of like help those users. So it was really kind of like meeting those things and practice of business and like software together. For me, it was like super, super cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those experiences. And definitely it sounds like both lesson and the deliverables that you completed during the internship have a big impact for your professional development as well. I believe that after finishing your master in MIT, you spent one year working as a junior data scientist at the vendor data group of Jump Trading in Chicago. From this experience, what could you say to be some of the major challenges dealing with high-frequency trading data? 
Yeah, totally. Jumping this junior data scientist position was also kind of interesting. This is like just when data science had like become a thing kind of more broadly and people were thinking about or publishing about these roles. Again, kind of being intimidated. I was like, oh man, you know, like I knew nothing about finance going in. I actually originally applied to jump, not knowing anything about it and just being like, well, this will be a good warm up for the rest of my interviews. And ultimately I ended up getting like jobs, a bunch of different places, including Google for like full-time positions. But oddly enough, I got the advice from my master's engineering advisor that is like, you only have so many data points in your life to figure out what you ultimately want to do, you know, the experiences that you have, where you work and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So to figure out kind of what you ultimately want to do, like you should spread out those data points as far as possible, you know, so you can explore a lot of the space. So being a data scientist and working at Jump Trading in Chicago was like super new. I was like, that's the thing that's the most different. So I decided to go there. And it was also kind of worked out because I wanted to stay close to home. My grandmother was sick at the time, but it turned out to be a great experience. In a lot of ways, I think that what I saw when I was at Jump in terms of data and like ML and production was actually really far ahead of the tech industry in a sense. It kind of makes sense, you know, like when you think about like tying data and algorithms to like business outcomes, it's like, it's directly like when you're doing like algorithmic trading, like literally you see the algorithm making you money or losing you money. So like the data, the like ML and production, all that stuff is super, super critical. And like, if you have a mistake, like you don't process a corporate action kind of correctly in time, like all sorts of weird things can end up happening where you see like a stock split as like, oh, this is like the price just dropped all of a sudden, like out of nowhere. If you don't kind of correctly deal with like the data that you're getting in, which could give you false signal for your algorithm. So as a result of that, data from the very beginning, like when I was a jump in a part of this vendor data group and the system that like I built there was just all about like thinking about how do we do this at scale with all the reference data, all the messy like vendor data that we have from like external like third parties dealing with that problem of just like external data and bringing that all together under like one kind of roof and identifier and doing that whole process was just like super fascinating because every data source is different, you know? And I think that like a lot of data scientists and people in practice can like struggle with that all the time, you know, is that every single data source is doing their own weird thing. And also thinking about like data quality. So kind of the two projects that I built out there was one, this first like ETL pipeline Mm -hmm. where I built out like the entire history of stock exchanges from like multiple different vendors and merged this together. So I built out effectively like a distributed computing thing from scratch with like custom caching and like dynamic work allocation. And I didn't even know systems. I was just like, oh, I just... I saw this problem. I was like, this is how I solve it. And then for data quality, I ended up creating this like decorator based thing that would basically run kind of sanity checks on this like ETL pipeline every time that I ran for every single vendor to make sure that the data wasn't messed up. So to make sure that like there weren't null values for like the identifier that we were using from that data source, or that there wasn't like a huge change in like the number of instruments that were listed in comparison to like what we had on previous days. Like a lot of these things, and it's kind of funny to me, I just like literally created a decorator thing where you would just say, hey, which trading line, which exchange and like type of instrument do you want to apply this to? The actual like Python function was like the actual code to do this check. Then I learned coming out to the Bay Area, you see things like great expectations 
expectations and stuff like that. And then people are thinking about data quality and monitoring and all of these pieces. And I was like, we were doing that back when I first started working there after, I guess, after I finished my master's of engineering in 2015. And like, I built out these systems. I was like, oh man, if I had only known, I thought that this was just a problem that they faced at Jump in finance. I didn't realize that like, oh, the entire world, like all these tech companies have the same problem with data, but it was super interesting. Yeah, definitely. You spent about a year working at Jump and in the fall of 2016, you embark on a PhD journey studying computer science at Stanford University. My question is twofold. First of all, what motivated you to pursue a PhD degree at this point? And secondly, how do you compare your overall academic experience at Stanford to that of MIT? Yeah, so what motivated me to pursue my PhD degree in the first place? By doing my master's of engineering at MIT with my advisor, Isaac Schwang, doing research made me realize that like, that curiosity that I had as like a kid and just exploring ideas like, oh, there's like a way for me to do that, you know, to just like pursue interesting technologies and be at the cutting edge. But I never really thought about academia or thought about doing a PhD. You know, it just seemed like, wow, like people that get PhDs are like just geniuses, you know, and I'm not a genius. But what ended up happening is I was talking with my advisor one day, like during our like weekly meeting. And he was like, you should really apply to PhD programs while I'm doing like my master's of engineering. And I was like, oh yeah, thanks. And then I was like, oh man, he's just being nice. Like, there's no way that like, he really thinks I can do a PhD or maybe it's just like, you know, it'll be like easy for him to just like kind of keep me on for this project. I didn't really do anything about it, you know? But then a few months later I came to him and I was talking about this like idea for modifying latent Dirichlet allocation to make it kind of more suitable for doing like modeling user behaviors and MOOCs and stuff like that. And like, he was like, man, like you should really apply to PhD programs and He's like, if money is an issue, I'll pay for you to apply to four schools. So that second time they said, I was like, oh man, he actually believes in me. He's actually willing to put his own money and invest in me to do this. So that's where I was like, you know, might as well give it a shot, you know, and see and apply. Also, I tried to ask him like an advice about like entrepreneurship or academia or industry after graduation. He was just like, apply to everything and then see what you get. And I was like, wow, that's really not helpful. Like that's a lot of work to do any of these things. But I decided to take him up on the PhD offer and I applied to four schools. I applied to Stanford, Berkeley, MIT, and then UT Austin. And to my surprise, I got into all of them, which I was like, what? Like that's insane. But also my advisor, he kind of tricked me in a sense. He was like, you know, the hard thing about a PhD program is getting in. He's like, just because you get in, it doesn't mean that you have to go. And just because you go, it doesn't mean that you have to finish. So I was like, oh yeah, you know, I can like go and do it and whatnot. And it's like totally reversible. But my personality was like, I'm not going to give up. So like once I started the PhD and everything like that, I ended up having to finish it. But it was kind of funny. I deferred the PhD to work at Jump for that year because of family reasons, because of my grandmother. And ultimately it kind of created this like really interesting decision process because when I was at Jump, I did really well. And they like wanted to move me to like the most profitable team at the firm and stuff like that at the time. And I was like, man, what do I like want out of like my life, you know, and like what I accomplish. And I realized that, as I said, my original goal was to be able to have a comfortable job where I could afford the things that I needed and do the things that I want. And effectively, when I was working at Jump, I had that life. So I realized that there was ultimately, after a lot of self-reflection, three things that I wanted from life. One was to be challenged and to constantly grow to be in a supportive environment that helps me grow and accelerates my growth. And then to have kind of a positive impact, a broader positive impact on the world. From working in finance, I was like, you know, I can get like the challenge piece of it. And then also the support because I was at a really great firm. They were super awesome. But like the broader positive impact thing was a little bit more questionable. And I saw kind of doing the PhD and going to Stanford 
as kind of an opportunity to have all three. And that if I look back on my life, I would end up kicking myself or regretting not giving it a chance, you know, versus like, let me just go. And if I failed and like, I know that I gave it my best shot and I can like take pride in that. And then the overall kind of experience about academia at Stanford versus MIT, it's kind of hard to compare in a sense because undergrad is very different than like grad school. Undergrad is very much teaching you how to be kind of efficient because like at MIT or like undergrad in general, like you just get a ton of stuff that like tossed at you and you have to figure out how do I like kind of do this efficiently? And like, like every week seems like, oh my gosh, I got like three problem sets to deal, a lab and like two exams. And you just got to figure out what's the right way to do something. How do I become like efficient? Whereas a PhD is about being effective, you know, figuring out what's the right thing for you to do. And it's much more self-directed, figuring out what are the right questions to ask and what's going to have kind of an impact in the community. So that's like one kind of like high level thing that I want to call out is like a difference between like MIT and Stanford. Overall, like both institutions are great and like amazing. I think that Stanford's maybe a little bit more entrepreneurial in a sense, having gone to MIT and then now come to Stanford, it's like entrepreneurship is everywhere. Uh, there's a program for undergrads, for like masters, for PhDs, as well as faculty members. So that's maybe the biggest difference between the two, aside from like other like logistics stuff of like location and whatnot. But yeah, thanks for sharing the context of why you make this decision and all the criteria to go into doing so and as well as your overall distinction of being efficient, being effective between these two educational levels. Stanford, you took part in the Dawn project and spared a Dawn bench, which is an end-to-end deep learning benchmark and competition. So can you provide the listeners a background overview of the Dawn project at Stanford and summarize some of the novelty developed with Dawn bench? Yeah, it's a great question. So the Dawn project at Stanford, the whole goal of it was to democratize artificial intelligence. You know, we kind of had been at this point where there's a lot of like very large success with like things like I think AlphaGo at the time, and you're seeing these kind of like large deep learning models and stuff, but it was just super expensive. Like the only people that were like really publishing or pursuing stuff in this space were like big tech companies like Google and Facebook. So the group kind of was a bunch of like faculty members from like assistance background, like really covering the full stack. So like both of my advisors, Matei Zaharia and Peter Bayless, as well as Chris Ray and Kunle, all basically trying to figure out how can we create the systems and tools and infrastructure in place that you know Google and Facebook have and bring that down to a level that anyone can use. So that really resonated with me because I mean ultimately the thing that I love about computer science is that with like internet connection and a laptop you can create something that like impacts the lives of thousands or millions of people around the world whereas like other forms of engineering you need like hundreds of thousands of dollars and like expensive equipment. With deep learning it started to seem like computer science was going in that direction where you need to have like a $100,000 machine like a DGX1 to be able to do anything. So the Dom project really tried to like, bring that down. And then the Dawn Bench project to this end was focusing on how can we just like be more efficient with training and doing inference with deep learning models and think about it really from like an end-to-end performance standpoint. So like actually not just focusing on like algorithmic changes, but also bringing in software changes and hardware changes to help people navigate this really complex space of like optimizations and different tools and things like that they could be using under this kind of like single end-to-end metric in terms of either time or cost that really relates to like how as like a practitioner, you think about these things. It's like, am I going to run this in an hour or like overnight, or is this going to be something that's going to run for the entire like month? And ultimately it was super successful and just getting people to focus on kind of improving efficiency in terms of time and cost where we saw massive, I think over for like training time on ImageNet dropped by like over 400 X as far as an improvement and then costs dropped by like 20 X. I see. 
Thanks for providing that context of that project. And I guess another related project that you work on, a subsidy of Dawn is called MLPerf. And this is another benchmark, industry standard benchmark for training inference performance of ML models. And I believe this project has been worked on over time. So would you mind unpacking the evolution of the MLPerf benchmark designs over the years? Yeah, totally. So MLPerf is the spiritual successor to Donbench in a sense. So when we started, there wasn't that many like benchmarks for system performance for deep learning. So basically MLPerf started by getting together the leading benchmarks kind of at that point. So it was like Donbench, then Baidu had DeepBench, which did kernel level benchmarking. Harvard had this benchmark called Fathom, and then Google had like TensorFlow benchmarks. And we basically came together to take the best pieces of all of those benchmarks and scale it up to more tasks and get broader like industry support so that it could become the industry standard. So we started off with kind of a small set of just like a group of like four organizations meeting in like a conference room like once a week to kind of coming up with like the initial straw person for these benchmarks, then presenting that to a larger kind of audience and like an announcement to get kind of broader industry support. And then going from like those four groups to like still in like a single conference room, but like a bunch of different representatives from many different companies to take that straw person and really kind of create something that was representative of like many different perspectives in the field and initially launch and keep an agile mentality with it. And ultimately, I mean, I still remember it was like in Gates 104, I had to like organize the actual meeting for like our first ever community meeting for MLPerf. But since then, it's just gotten a lot of support, like all the hardware manufacturers from NVIDIA to like Intel to like startups like Cerebrus are all involved. And now it's kind of become this truly like the vision of becoming the industry standard has happened, where now all these companies are like, they like submit to the benchmark and they report results and it's continuing to expand into these other challenging areas of ML systems performance. These things are kind of blocking it from getting into practice. So now it's grown into this whole nonprofit called ML Commons. Mm -hmm. And as that, like we first started off with benchmarking system performance, but now it's thinking about data as well, as well as kind of best practices for ML in production. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And we'll definitely talk about some of those benchmark for data later on. And I'll be sure to include the links of uh, ML comments into the notes as well. So, you know, people can have a chance to take a look and, and dive deeper into some of the work that happened over time. Now, so I want to discuss a couple of your research papers on your PhD thesis, and that focus on efficient data selection for deep learning. The first paper is called Selection via Proxy, Efficient Data Selection for Deep Learning. And I believe that in this work, you use a small proxy model to improve the computational efficiency of performing data selection for neural networks. So can you walk through your motivation to work on this problem and the empirical work being accomplished here? Yeah, so great question. So this kind of ties back to like the whole mission of like the Dawn project and democratizing machine learning. So on one side, you see this whole, it's very expensive at the time to like train deep learning models and to do inference with them. Um, so it's like, how can we be more efficient with computational resources? But at the same time, I, the other big thing that I saw as a blocker was just the amount of data that you need it, you know? ImageNet was kind of like a gold standard and like all academics were kind of using these data sets that were kind of basically created and canned for them. But in practice, you don't have that. For a lot of these tasks, you actually have to create kind of your own data set. I realized that if we kind of go with this mentality of just purely like thinking about the quantity of data, like the general wisdom at the time was just like, go and collect any data and like toss data at these things and I'll like figure it out. And you just need tons and tons of data. It's like, not everyone has tons and tons of like labeled data. 
So that's really where I was interested in rather than like thinking about just like quantity of data, can we be smarter about the data that we're picking and labeling so that we can actually make it something that's like more accessible to smaller companies? You know, there's a lot of great work that was out there in like the active learning and course set selection literature for how do we select these kind of like most valuable data points. But when you think about just the scale of like modern data sets and models, you know, like rather than thinking about a few thousand like examples, we're now talking about kind of millions or billions of unlabeled examples and models that now take like days to train. Like a lot of these kind of like classical methods, like didn't scale super well. The thing that I kind of realized like there is like, well, maybe we can actually be a little bit more efficient. We can scale down these models to get a useful signal to be able to select the most valuable data points without having to go with this kind of like super expensive model and running that over every single like data point at every iteration. And it turns out that it works. You can actually use these smaller models and they give you kind of enough information to be like, hey, this data point is going to be more valuable than this other data point, because they're actually like very highly correlated with these kind of like larger models. So that was the first initial step into this process of being more intelligent with selecting kind of data in this kind of modern big data world. And then that led to follow on work and this whole second part of my thesis around like data efficient deep learning. Perfect. So I want to continue your research thread on efficient data selection for deep learning. And another paper that I found out from looking at your Google Scholar is called a similarity search for efficient active learning and search of rare concepts. And as I look at the abstract of the paper, you basically improve the computational efficiency of active learning and search method by restricting the candidate pool for labeling to the nearest neighbors of the currently labeled set instead of scanning over all the unlabeled data. First of all, can you discuss the challenges with existing active learning and search approach? And secondly, can you talk about the design of your solution to address such challenges? Yeah, so great question. So this work, Similarity Search for Efficient Active Learning in Search of Rare Concepts, kind of builds on the same goal that I was talking about and thinking about with um, selection by a proxy. You know, rather than like throwing a ton of data at stuff, actually being more intelligent about it. And we have these kind of same kind of bottlenecks, you know, just the fact that the size of data sets that we're thinking about are much larger and the models that we're using are much larger and require a lot of computation. Selection via proxy improve like the amount of computation that we have to do per each example, as well as reduce the amount of computation in between selection rounds, but still require you to scan over all of the data. So selection via proxy works, it gets you a little bit further, but when you think about kind of like practical data sets and like practical problems, like when I was working on similar research for efficient active learning and search for concepts, which I'll call SEALs, I was at Facebook and Facebook, the scale of data is like billions and billions of examples, where when you think about just even that process of scanning over a billion examples between each round of selecting data points, that becomes so computationally infeasible, even if you have like a small model that it becomes like almost like too hard for these methods to work at that scale. So really we want these algorithms. And when you look at traditional existing active learning approaches, as well as like course set selection, when you look at like active learning and active search like approaches, traditionally they scan at least linearly with the size of the unlabeled data, potentially quadratically with the size of the unlabeled data if we're trying to bring in some like diversity into this thing, because we have to see like, not only is this data point interesting, but is it representative of the broader pool of examples that we have? So thinking about this challenge and thinking about like, okay, we're at the scale of like billions of examples. We can't really do anything that even scales linearly. Ultimately, we need these like methods to scale like sublinearly with the size of the unlabeled data. So kind of seeing that challenge, that was the original inspiration for SEALs came from. 
we're realizing that, you know, we've gotten pretty good with a lot of these like pre-trained models and embedding data um, where we can actually learn really good representations, whether it be like for text, images, video, all these forms of kind of unstructured data. And effectively, when we think about these models and when we think about what these embeddings do and what the learned representations do, they take these data points that have similar features and they cluster it together. So like if we're looking for some new concept, even if we haven't seen that or trained on it before, those data points actually are kind of clustered together in a small portion of this overall space. And especially when we're thinking about kind of like web scale data, a single concept is only like one of like thousands or millions of different things that we might have in this broader space of things in the world. So rather than like trying to search globally over all the data to find this like specific concept that we care about, instead, let's start with like the kind of positive examples, like a, a few kind of seed examples for what is the concept and actually grow our search space from there. At each step, basically expanding kind of like the area or the number of examples that we're considering. Almost if you're like familiar with the flood fill like method or something like that for like painting in a space, basically kind of going out and trying to find the perimeters of the space. And the, the key thing, the surprising thing here is that, you know, because these concepts are actually well clustered by these representations that we have now, we actually find out that we actually only need to look at a very small fraction of the overall data set to be able to kind of find relevant examples, find the boundaries for that concept and be able to train an accurate classifier. So seeing that we can actually kind of slowly grow this like space by just doing like similarity search, which is really, really fast kind of with modern systems, especially doing approximate similarity search with things like Vice or like any of these hashing or clustering based um, methods for it. And now rather than scanning linearly or quadratically, we scale sublinearly with the size of the data. So now it's as easy to work with a data set with billions of examples as it was to work with a, a data set with a million or a few thousand unlabeled examples. You can now all do this from like your same laptop and same machine with like very, very fast and a responsive uh, experience, which is perfect for human in the loop setups. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So you said the motivation is really because you was interning at Facebook and you're dealing with that gigantic scale level and then being inspired that and going back to your PhD, dig deeper into specific techniques to leverage that knowledge and work with that scale data set, right? As, as you already mentioned, it seems like this paper really had both the benefits in terms of accuracy performance, as well as the competitional trade-off, right? Just curious, what's the next step in terms of making progress, continuing this thread, let's say for someone who want to continue on improving cost selection, data selection for efficient deep learning? Yeah, totally. So I think there's like a ton of different things to do in this space around active learning and just improving efficiency here. I mean, like really, I think kind of like what we'll see is one, just the representation learning piece, creating better models that cluster unseen examples more and seeing how that impacts the method like SEALs and this exploration. So as these representations get better, like SEALs will actually get better as well because things will be closerly clustered together. The other thing that we started to look at in SEALs was, and this paper was actually just like new algorithms or like ways of doing new methods for doing active learning, where we exploit the fact that we actually have like a K-nearest neighbors index and we can do similarity search on. Actually, in like the super long appendix that we have, there's like a, a more theoretical version of the algorithm that goes beyond uncertainty sampling to actually be like, hey, you know, we can actually generate examples or generate data points in this like latent space. And we can still query that using similarity search index. You can actually generate and like explore the space even with finer grain setup. Mm -hmm. So that's like one super interesting thing there. And then like beyond just 
selecting which data points to label, I think there's a lot of stuff where you can mix this in with weak supervision or semi-supervised methods where now that you have this label, how can we make the most use of that label? So you can do things like label propagation and things like that in order to make that even more efficient. And combining all of these things together, I think is going to be super exciting to see. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. So it's actually definitely excited to see how the future of this research direction is going to move forward. So at Stanford, you were advised by professors Matej Zaharia and professors Peter Bellis, who are both academics and startup founders simultaneously. What have you learned from them in terms of bringing machine learning from research to industry? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to do my PhD at Stanford and a part of the Dawn Project because it's such an entrepreneurial environment. You know, all the faculty members ended up starting a company in addition to doing research. It was like, I feel like it's almost like part of like the tenure process at Stanford that you had to like start a company or something. But seeing this and also being in one of the nice things about the Dawn Project and working on more systems related research is that you really are focusing on industry and like problems that people have in industry, but you have more freedom effectively to like think about these problems at like a broader scale, talk to many different people and figure out what's that commonality as that core problem. So going from like the symptoms that you hear at different companies and industry to like what is like a central solution that solves kind of all of these symptoms and get at that core problem. So I think that was super interesting, kind of just being able to do that process in like an environment like Stanford, where I have more flexibility of like thinking about like, oh, what are the problems that people are facing in industry and like taking a step back, which ultimately I think translates over well into like starting a company. And then also, I mean, like Matei and Peter, I think were super great as far as just like, it was almost like, I feel like I was getting an introductory course into entrepreneurship and like, what does it look like as you're like going through like the process of starting a company and just like how busy you are and like, how do you think about managing like teams and stuff like that? So there's just like a ton of stuff about kind of operationally, like mm-hmm. how do you think about this and seeing them kind of manage this stuff. And also like, I think Peter in particular, just seeing him get increasingly busy, like since he started his company while I was a PhD student, and then just seeing like how he navigates, like having more and more responsibilities and kind of that whole process. Almost I got to see kind of through osmosis, like what is it like to be like an early stage founder and all of these points. And then I always like reach back out to them to be like, you know, if I have any questions and stuff like that, it's kind of nice that they've like been there and done that before. So there's all these like little pieces that come together, which is super awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It seems like they, again, are the type of people who would definitely make a big difference in your journey as well, similar to like the people back in high school or college. And this is like just another milestone of your career, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, Matei and Peter are both like role models to me in a sense. Like I think just seeing Matei go through his whole process with like Spark and his PhD, like research and turning that into a company. I was like, man, you know, like seeing him do it, I was like, man, this might be like possible. And uh, they were both super supportive of everything that I did. Yeah, Yeah. it was wonderful. Recently, you have organized the data-centric AI workshop at NeoRips 2021, as well as the DataPerf benchmark suite. And both of them are really aimed to cultivate the data-centric AI community into a vibrant interdisciplinary field that tackles practical data problems. So what are some of the key development trends in this emerging community that you pay attention to in 2022? Uh, 
man, I am so excited about this like movement for like data centric AI and data perf and things like that. When I think back to like selection by a proxy and then also the work on seals, I feel like it was very much in this space of data centric AI, thinking about like, how do we create better data sets and how do we do that process? But there wasn't really that community. So I always felt very isolated as like a systems person, like thinking about data. And I think one of the amazing things about like the data centric AI workshop and data perf and this whole community that's coming together is, you know, like I no longer feel alone. And I think also a lot of other people no longer feel alone because these data problems, like one of the surprising things from like the workshop is that they come up everywhere, you know, like data is like core to everything that we're doing in ML, but yet it's kind of been a second-class citizen to like models in like the past. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we saw people from like a systems background, from like traditional like machine learning, like you have like folks like Andrew Ang and like Olga from Princeton and all these folks have involved. Then you also have like HCI, like people as well, like Michael Bernstein, all involved in like thinking about these problems. One of the quotes that I remember super vividly was I think from D. Scully about, we have this whole notion of HCI, human computer interaction. And it's like, we almost need a new field specifically around data, which is like human data interaction. And I think that that's like one really interesting idea that I think we're going to see more and more of which is like, how do we enable people to interact with data and to be human in the loop and for like humans and machines to actually be able to work together more efficiently in this process to create this next wave of applications that are powered by AI and that are using data under the hood. So I think that's super awesome. And then the DataPerf benchmark suite, I think is just a super awesome initiative to see coming together. I mean, we have like amazing people working on that from academia, from like Stanford, Harvard, ETH Zurich, as well as folks from Meta, Google, Landing AI, and of course like Coactive AI all coming together. And I think that like, that's just the beginning. You know, I think we're going to see a very similar thing that we saw with the progression from Don Bench to MLPerf, but now with like DataPerf as well, where this becomes the industry standard that mm-hmm. actually helps like align people around like, what's like even like the language that we think about? What are the problems? How do we measure these different components mm-hmm. of like the data lifecycle and data pipeline that we're all creating for these intelligent applications? Yeah, I see. It's really exciting to being in front of the wave, being the instigator almost of a new movement and it seems like a lot of this workshop and benchmark design that you have facilitated here serve as the guiding principles to create standards around this community. So talking about like specifically your current journey, after finishing your PhD, you head back officially on a new journey as the founder of Collective AI, which brings unstructured data into the world of SQL and the big data tools that teams already love. What lesson have you learned thus far to find early adopters and move towards product market fit for your startup? Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, And thinking about finding early adopters and product market fit, I think going back to the lessons I learned from like Matei and Peter, I think it's a very similar process there of just like talking with a bunch of different companies, seeing kind of what are the symptoms of like the problems that they're talking about, and then going back to, hey, what's like the core problem there? It's just interesting as you talk with like different folks, like the way that they articulate their problems or their pain points will differ, but there's like some commonality with a lot of these points. Like one thing that I think in particular became super obvious as they talked to like many data scientists and data analysts about working with like image and video data or really all forms of unstructured data 
is that the problem, the thing that makes this working with image or video data in particular really hard is metadata. That's like how a data scientist would describe it. It's like, this is a metadata problem, you know, because all we have is just kind of some rough information about the image, like things like file size, like file name and stuff like that. But all the real value, like the semantically meaningful information is captured in like the pixels of like that image. Now there's this whole gap from like, okay, this is a metadata problem to like, how do we actually solve and think about that as well? And like the metadata problem is a symptom, but like, what is the underlying problem that we're trying to solve in the pipeline that we're trying to fix there? So I think that was like one thing that's been like super interesting, just like talking with a bunch of folks and seeing commonality, like every data scientist talks about metadata as a problem with working with this. So like, how can we like help them deal with this metadata problem for this like super large amounts of data? I think the other thing that was big for me is like, you know, coming out of like a PhD and like doing like ML systems from like the ground up and stuff like that. I think I was almost too much in like the world of like the PhD zone where like all of this stuff, like all these methods, I'll talk about self-supervised learning or like active learning and stuff like that. And like, when you think about kind of practitioners, right? Like a lot of these terms are just like meaningless in a sense. It's like, and bridging that gap of like, hey, you know, there's this technology that, you know, I've, I've spent my time working, doing my PhD on, but how do I bridge that to like a world that you actually kind of appreciate on a day-to-day basis? And I think that was one of the key lessons, like for me, is just realizing that the world that I've been in is very, very specific and niche in like a research world and like thinking about the broader data ecosystem. I think it was one huge piece. It reminded me of like when I was a data scientist at Jump, honestly, I was like, oh yeah. Like before I like did my PhD, I remember being like, oh man, all this stuff sounds really intense and super complicated. And like, it was like, it was very hard. Um, and now kind of getting back into that mindset and like having that empathy for like just data practitioners out there that haven't spent five years of their life just like reading like NeurIPS papers, you know? So I think that was a, a huge lesson learned. I see. Thanks for sharing the details and lesson on those points about the importance of translating your expertise from, you know, being a PhD student into actually making it valuable for industrial practitioners. And I guess another big challenge for you as an early stage fighter is actually hiring, right? Because like you have to expand your team and finding the right people who align with your goals and your mission. And I'm sure that as a first time fighter, it, it might be a lot of big learning curve for you. What's just been Johnny so far in terms of attracting the right people who are excited about the mission of Collective AI? Oh, that's a super, that's a great question, actually. Yeah, one thing that was actually really surprising, like before I started the company and even like kind of during the process, I talked with a lot of founders about what were like the biggest challenges and the hardest things that they like thought about. And one surprising thing, it like blew me away is that, especially as technical founders, a lot of people undervalued HR and human resources like problems, you know, they didn't really think about like, oh, like what's like the culture that you're shaping? How are you like thinking about like people and that whole piece? And when I talked with like founders, even like very successful founders, they're like, yeah, this was like one of their biggest and most painful mistakes. I remember talking to like an awesome CEO of like a multi-billion dollar company and he's like, yeah, like HR, like 90% of his job is HR related things. Like the toughest decisions in the company are HR job or like HR problems. Like, hey, should we hire a chief revenue officer right now? What is our like compensation philosophy? How do we think about kind of like the organization of the company? How do we deal with like cultural issues and like all of that? Which I was kind of surprised to like hear that like, oh, you know, like the toughest problems and like majority of his time is spent on HR stuff. And like the engineering, the technical problems, you know, the things that have been kind of my bread and butter for like the past five years actually aren't like 
that difficult in a sense, you know, it's like, you'll figure it out, like with enough time and people are very excited about doing that. And almost for me, like as a founder, I have to like resist the urge to like, just like dive into like the technical and engineering piece, which I love, like, I love engineering. I love being a data scientist and things like that. Um, as well as a researcher and things like that, but just pulling myself away and thinking like kind of more about people and culture. And um, I think as a result of that, we actually did the opposite of a lot of other companies. We actually created our culture and thought about our culture actually first. And we open sourced our culture onto GitHub, you know, to actually put it out there as far as what are our guiding principles as a company. So we created like before we even had like a website for like Coactive AI, we had culture.coactive.ai, which is like a GitHub page of, hey, what are our culture guiding principles and thoughts about that so that we could iterate and build off of that. And we try to put that into every piece of like our process from interviewing to onboarding and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so far it's, uh, it's really helped. I would say just like a huge like differentiator for us. And also ultimately gives me peace of mind because my worst fear is not like the company not being successful or like or something like that. My worst fear is just like waking up in the morning and just dreading going to work because it's like a toxic culture where I'm just like, oh man, I don't want to work with these folks and things like that. For me, it's it's been great in thinking about that and just creating an environment where I'm excited to like work with everyone that's on the team. It's just like super awesome. Just like the people that we have and that we have joining. I feel like it's really special. Not only are we building really cool products, but, and what we do is awesome. I think how we're doing it as well has been like just super great to see just like the people just like everything. When we think about just like the diversity, inclusion and things like that, we thought about it from the very beginning rather than like, I think for a lot of other companies, it's a bolt-on thing that they think about afterwards. It made it like feel like a breath of fresh air, like working at Coactive. I see. I'll be sure to include the URL to the Kartra deck that you mentioned to the show notes. So anyone interested can just take a look and see how, yeah. how it looks actually like. Just to call that out, I would welcome like people to give us feedback, to submit issues, yeah. to do PRs and to fork it. You know, really we like, want to grow together and like help advance like what is culture and what is uh-huh. um, the tech company mean. So really, I just want to double click on that, that we really like welcome feedback from everyone as we kind of figure out what makes the most sense. And hopefully this becomes a resource that other companies can build on and, and do even better than us in the future. Yeah. I'm just curious, like when you actually brainstorm the process of writing that document about culture, was there any other companies that you inspire a lot from and borrow piece of bits from the spaces and what are some of those? companies with great culture that you and try to emulate at Coactive? Yeah. So that's a super great question. I mean, like at the very beginning of our culture document, we kind of talk about this, you know, like we're not alone in this pursuit of creating kind of great company culture. So we take inspiration from like many other companies. So I looked at like, you know, I read the book, like No Rules Rules about Netflix, which I think is a great book and I highly recommend. Ben Horowitz also has a great book on culture, which I I like read and like went through as well. And then like just looking up companies that we're inspired by effectively, like having worked at Google in the past, like the great things about Google and just their environment there. Great things from like Facebook as well about their pursuit and like speed, but trying to improve things as well. You know, I think like the motto of move fast and break things made sense at a time, but taking it a step further where we like hopefully break a few less things and we're maybe a little bit more thoughtful about it and just kind of trying to improve on that. And then even looking at culture documents from like HubSpot and just many, many different companies. I just like went on a search for like culture at like different companies, talked to like folks that, I mean, Matei created Databricks. So we took a lot of inspiration from like Databricks and read books on like hiring and things like that. So really just like talking with a bunch of people and just asking the question, like, how do you think about culture? Sure. So to wrap up our main question, obviously like you have wide variety of experience in academy and industry. So reflecting on 
that whole journey being in these different environmental settings. What do you see as the main differences and similarities between being a researcher and being a father? Yeah, so this is a great question, you know, and I actually like recently was thinking about this over the holidays as well. I think that there's a lot of similarities between being a researcher and a founder. Fundamentally, you're doing this kind of same problem of like going from like an idea, right, like a hypothesis in the case of like research, and then like going and like systematically like testing that out, you know, like as a researcher, we think of the scientific method. And then as an entrepreneur, like it's basically the same thing when you think of like the lean startup, you know, you have a hypothesis, you observe stuff, you have a hypothesis, you design a test to like test that hypothesis and then iterate on that. I think that mechanical process of like, how do you take an idea from like zero to one is very similar in a research and like a founder environment. You also have to think about how do you present your work as a researcher to like the broader world so people understand and like understanding your audience. The same thing with like being a founder as far as like figuring that out. And uh, even just the process of figuring out product market fit is I feel like every PhD student goes through a similar process where it's like the third year of your PhD, like middle of your PhD, you have an existential crisis where you're like, oh my gosh, like who am I as like a researcher and stuff like that. I mean, I did like, like in my third year of my PhD, I thought about dropping out because it was like, oh, you know, none of this work come together yet. I think at that point, only like Don Bench had been accepted and that was a workshop paper. And I was like, man, like all this other stuff, like who knows if I'm going to graduate. And then the following year, like ML Perf got accepted, both training and inference and then a section by a proxy. And then now SEALs as well has been accepted. And I was like, oh, I went from like zero to like being able to graduate in a year. And I think that process of just like figuring out in the case of a PhD, figuring out what your research direction is and what do you want to be an expert in is very similar to figuring out product market fit as a founder, like a company. So that's like very similar. I think the difference though, is that the PhD in a sense feels like binary and like scary in a sense, right? It's like you either like get the PhD at the end or you don't. And all of like your success depends on your advisor, you know, just like one person versus the startup, like you can iterate, you can talk to a bunch of different folks and you have a lot of flexibility there. So, and it's a bit more incremental. Every brick that you place down is adding value to the company. So I think that's like one thing that's different as a founder versus a researcher. Yeah, I think that's great, boys. It's almost felt like in the startup environment, there's quick, faster feedback loop. Yeah. Cody, at this part of the conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment. You wish I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then give the answers for the listeners. Yeah. Number one, Name three people in the broader machine learning community whose work you admire. Yeah, so I think Matei Zaharia, my PhD advisor, Feifei Li as well. And for Matei and Feifei, I think it's a very similar reason. Like they started out with like projects that people thought were crazy. You know, like Spark got like rejected three times before it got accepted. And now it's like this massive technology that everyone uses and Databricks is really successful. Feifei, very similarly, she came from a super humble background as well, like from New Jersey, very humble there. And then like did this whole stuff around data sets and like ImageNet, which people thought were crazy. And then that became super successful. I also really like enjoy Michael Bernstein, I think is also really great at Stanford, just like his whole view on human computer interactions and and how he operates very, very quick and very fast. I think he's an amazing manager and leader in a sense. I had the pleasure of like working with him as a rotation advisor. So definitely admire his work as well. Perfect. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate a resilience mindset. Yeah, so this might be a recency bias, but I recently finished reading this book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And I think it's like a classical guide, the subtitle is like a classical guide to peak performance. 
I think that this book is just like really great about being aware and kind of mindful and like not letting yourself get in your own way effectively. So I highly recommend The Inner Game of Tennis. And then finally, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the academics turn early stage fathers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Yeah, I think I would just probably tweet like, keep going, you know, and just be open to feedback and just keep that same mentality of just the scientific method and that lean mentality as long as you can. So perfect. I think that's a great way to finalize and end our conversation. So Cody, I really enjoyed talking with you today, learning about your upbringing, your journey to being interested in science and technology, your time at MIT, your work at John Trading, various internships at Google, uh, your experience as a PhD student at Stanford, making those advancement of ML performance competition, as well as some of the great research work on efficient data selection for deep learning, some of your initiatives with cultivated data centric community, and your current journey with Coactive AI as well. I think there's a lot of different threads that listeners and myself can learn from your stories through a different milestone. And I hope that, you know, people can learn and extract valuable insight and apply that for their career as they listen to this conversation. So Cody, I really appreciate it and uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And yeah, it was a great opportunity and just overall great podcast. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.